Hey, would you please turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 13? And um, I know I say that every week, but this week you will really need to uh, just follow along with, with the text. And we're going to have it on the screen here, obviously. Um, but it's just good for you to see with your own eyes uh, the Word of God and what it has to say. Um, part, of, part of my job here and part of the job of, of any preacher is to get you to see what does the Word of God actually say? What does God say to us through His Word? And so that's why we put an emphasis on looking at the Scripture and seeing what does God tell us this week. And we are in our last sermon now in our Hebrews series. So this is the 13th week that we've been going through uh, the book of Hebrews. And I think it's safe to say that there were some difficult passages that we went through. There were some hard ones. I think we might have even skipped a few, you know, just could only handle so much. Um, but then there were some other passages that um, maybe raised uh, some confusion or some questions. And I know many of the groups had some good opportunities for discussion as well. And then there's just been a lot of passages um, that have been good, exciting, and just great for the soul to, to look at and see. And now we come to chapter 13, which if you've been looking ahead, you'll see that chapter 13 is not like any of the other chapters, okay? It is the chapter where he kind of throws every last thing that is on his mind into the book, okay? This is like suddenly he found out that his flight or his ship was leaving two days earlier, and he just threw everything that he could think of in this last chapter. He kind of throws it all in there. It got me thinking of us as parents. I know this is how it works in our household, probably still on a daily basis. It's like as the kids are going out the door, you're asking, like, do you have your lunch? Do you got your water bottle? Um, do you have your mask, right? Um, make sure you make good choices at school and, you know, make some good friends and all these, like, last little words that they've probably heard us say um, almost on a daily basis, right? Five days a week. It's just like over and over and over again. Well, that is what the author is doing here in Hebrews, okay? He is just laying out this list of all kinds of last things that are on his mind that he wants people to take with them. And so he doesn't, in most cases, explain a lot of the rationale behind them. In his mind, he's thinking, I've spent 12 chapters, definitely 11 chapters, developing all the theological background to these ideas, and now he's coming to the, just the total practical application side of things, okay? So this message, if you've ever wondered, you know, where's the application, you know? Where's the sermon going? What am I supposed to take with me? Well, this sermon is all application, okay? So if you are like a note-taking person or you want to take down application, it is all there, and there's a lot to cover, okay? So that is why I have my timer on here so that I can be reminding myself uh, to keep moving, okay? So is everybody with me? We're going to go through a journey here through the last chapter. And as we go into each different topic, I want you to keep this little phrase in your mind, okay? Again, he's not going to cover a lot of background to all these little practical applications, but you and I should keep in our mind that this little phrase that says, because Jesus is better, I should dot, 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 and we'll add that practical application, okay? Because Jesus is better, I should. That is the whole rationale behind all these points of application. So the first one here is, 
practice sacrificial love. So in your mind, you should be thinking, because Jesus is better, which has been the driving theme for the book of Hebrews, that no matter what religious background, no matter what ideas you're coming from, whatever you're bringing to the conversation, the author has been saying the overriding theme is that Jesus is better. And now the result of that understanding is a changed life. And so because Jesus is better, I should practice sacrificial love. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. It says this, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. He's writing to a context that is actually very similar to ours. He's writing to people that are used to love being experienced in the context of family. Okay, so a nuclear family, maybe a, uh, a married couple with children experiencing this beautiful bond of a family relationship, maybe even the extended family, that it's within that context of parents, children, grandparents, uncles and aunts, that is where the familial love is experienced. But now the author is saying there's a new way actually. There is a new kind of love that we are to experience And it's a love that involves all kinds of other people. So now as as Christians are coming together, he says, the thing is, you're supposed to consider each other as familial. This love that you're supposed to express to each other is like a family love. It's like a brotherly, a sisterly, a parent kind of love. Now the problem is, we grow weary of that. We grow tired of each other. I know that it happens in our household, okay? I don't know if it happens in your household, but it happens in our household. It's definitely happened during this pandemic a few times where Liz or I will look across the table and we'll either think it or probably a few times we even said it, um, you're difficult to live with. (laughs) And at first it's kind of like said in jest, right? Like that's kind of a joke, but we all really know if we get to the root of it and if we're honest with ourselves, we are difficult to live with. Like each one of us, at different points, are difficult to live with. Some people are nicer than others, but most of us are just generally difficult at different times. And that's what makes this command so difficult and so unique. And so what the author is saying here, literally what he's trying to tell them to do is the answer is to will into practice brotherly love. Okay, because it is not the natural thing. So we look around the room right now and we might say, man, the people that are here right now that I know that are a part of Citizens, I like these people. I I know like a lot of them. This is really, maybe this will be like an easy journey for us. But then someone's going to walk in the door and someone's going to come in and you're going to be like, that person is really difficult to love. And it's in those moments where this command is put forward for us that he says, grow you know, expand, will to put into practice this idea of brotherly love because you are called to be a family together. So, one, practice sacrificial love. Number two, make space. Look at verse two and three. And these are, they could be separated, but I put them together because I really think the ideas are linked. So verse two says this, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. 
So here he says, again, as this community of faith, as this family community, part of your practicing this brotherly and sisterly love is to identify with people, to make space for people physically in your presence through the gift of hospitality, and also mentally or spiritually in your heart as you remember people that are actually in difficult circumstances. So on one hand, it's this idea of open hands, this idea of having a home of hospitality. And hospitality maybe um, is almost a bit of a, a dying art, or it's, it's morphed into maybe like a, an Instagram thing, right? Where we're still having maybe our friends over. <clears throat> we're still maybe having uh, meals around the table, excuse me. <clears throat> but what's missing is actually this element of inviting strangers into our presence. People who are not necessarily close to us. People who are new maybe to our circles. These are people that are other than us. They are different from us. And he's saying, when you have this family of faith that's growing, there are going to be new strangers, in a sense, that are coming into your midst. And part of your, your application of the truth of the gospel is that you actually allow them into your presence. And you allow them into your presence around a table, or maybe even it's broader than that. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book on hospitality, she writes this. We must be willing to practice hospitality as both host and guest. And we must see how the principle of both giving and receiving builds community and glorifies God. Again, there are no renters or onlookers or gawkers in the kingdom of God. We are hosts and guests together and both generous and giving and openly receiving God's blessing. So you see, hospitality is not just you bringing someone into your home to enjoy food. It might be that. That is definitely a part of it but it's also you being willing to be served by others. It is reciprocal in nature. Therefore, it is this openness that is practiced where people have you near them and you have them near you. And the beauty of the table, of food around the table, which uh, someday soon we will begin to move towards that, right? We're getting there. Slowly we're getting there. We're starting to eat popcorn, okay? Little things with people. But eventually there's gonna be like real food around the table that you can chew and eat. And the beauty is, you experience this closeness with people, and you get to see them at a different level. So you have this idea of open hands, but then you also have this idea of open hearts, and the, and the author calls them to remember people in prison, right? He says, remember those who are in prison, because in the context, they were literally having people that were getting locked up for a time and released for a time, and so here you've got these new people coming to the church, not family. Now I'm called to treat them like family, but they were just in prison. And Paul says, make, like, remember them. Do not be so driven by your own problems, your own world affairs, that those people who are suffering within your midst are not even coming to mind. And so he says, make space at the table and make space in your mind for these strangers, these outsiders, these new people that are actually a part of God's family who are a part of your local family. Okay, number three, 
Honor marriage. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So he says here, again, going from like one topic to the next, he says, okay, when it comes to marriage, I want you to honor marriage. And the reason why he says that is because marriage, the Christian view of marriage was just as radical in the first century as it is becoming in our day and age today. Okay? And so to understand marriage and to honor marriage is to really get a good glimpse of what is God's view. Like, what does God want marriage to be? Because marriage is not something that is culture-defined. It is not something that is created by people. Marriage is actually a gift, and it is given to us by God himself. So really to, to see, I've just written down here four verses to give us uh, a glimpse of God's picture of what marriage is meant to be. And it starts all the way back in Genesis. The foundation of it is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Listen to these verses. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God begins by creating man and woman and saying, this is the mandate for you. You know, take care of the earth. Then in Genesis 2, verse 23, he says this, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So we get this picture. Okay, this is what marriage is meant to be right from Genesis. Then Jesus in Matthew 19 kind of pulls both those together and helps us understand a little bit more what, what that looks like. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 19 verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus gives us like a little bit more. He says, he takes both those Genesis texts and he puts them together, and then he says, you know what? When people are doing that, Though there might be a rabbi, there might be a pastor, there might be an elder, someone like officiating the service, what's actually happening is before God, they're being brought together. That's what's happening in marriage. God is bringing two people together. Then in Ephesians 5, the last one here, Paul gives us one more little glimpse of what marriage is meant to be. Paul says this in chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, we've heard that a few times, right? That is the general picture here. But verse 32 says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says here is what is really going on behind the scenes in marriage. Marriage is not something that we just idolize because it's like the greatest thing ever. Marriage is not something that everybody needs to have because we know that Jesus was not married, and yet he was the most complete human that was out there. But he says, when you see marriage happening, 
When you have this understanding of what marriage is, you will realize that it is actually a picture of Christ and the church. So the text here is saying, honor marriage. Understand what marriage is and why it is that as believers, we want to fight together so that marriages will last to the end of their days because it's a picture of Christ and his church and Christ's unending love for his church. So we honor marriage. Number four, be content. Look at verses five and six. Verse five says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I think I had up there, and maybe I just passed over it, this quote from Billy Graham that says, tell me what you think about money, and I can tell you what you think about God. And the Bible has a lot to say about money because it knows that money has this way of kind of like working itself right into our hearts to, to divide our ambitions and to make us want to do things that we shouldn't be doing. And so here the author is saying, be content with what you have. And listen, that is hard in our day and age. I have made a habit. I love watching um, these Apple product launches. Okay, I don't know if anybody has watched those. But I've been watching those for years, maybe back when Steve Jobs was still alive, okay? These launches where like a new phone is coming out or back in the day it was always like new software or something was, you know, exciting. But they really know how to get you to be discontented with what you have. Right? By the end of the product launch, you're like, this phone, man, it's just garbage. I, just, I need the new one, you know, discontentment. They are masters of that. And that is just one company. We know that we live in a world that is just trying to get us to get new things and to be discontent with the things that we have so that we would just want more and we purchase more and it kind of keeps this drive of the economy going. And the author here is saying, don't do that. Why should we not do that? He gives us an inkling into that because what we're actually doing when we are striving for more things, striving for new things, is we are placing on those things this, this idea of ultimate reality. That this new phone or this new truck or this new home will fill this ultimate reality within our hearts that God is the only one who can fill. And yet somehow we think that we're actually going to be able to do that. And he says, he says, listen, don't do that because look at the end of verse 5. He says, the real thing that's happening is we are questioning whether or not God is enough. So he says, I will never, this is what God is saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. So all these other things that, that say they can fill this void or that they can like create this internal satisfaction. They will not do it. And he says, choose contentment because you can confidently say as a child of God that the Lord is my helper. The new iPhone will not fill that void. So we choose contentment because Christ is the thing that satisfies. Okay, number five, follow godliness. Look at verse seven here. It says, remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. We live in an interesting time. It's not completely unique, but we live in a time where you can follow your favorite uh, pastor or you can listen to your, you know, your, the speaker of the podcast that you love the most and that can be like the person that you look to and this is not something new. Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 3 where he said, man, some of you are saying I've been baptized by Apollo. Some of you are saying I've been baptized by Paul and Paul's like, why are you doing that? I, I don't want any of you. I don't want followers, okay? I don't think Paul would be on Twitter or Instagram, he's like, I don't want any followers. He says, this is what you want to follow. He's talking actually about leaders who probably from their midst had had died already, and so they were thinking of these people who brought the word of God to them. They were the maybe the teachers in their church, and he says, here's what you want to consider when you remember them, when you think of them, when you re-listen their sermons, okay? When you think about the teaching that they had for you, what you want to do is consider their lives. And this is the beauty of what the local church can bring, where you can actually see the life of the person who is bringing the word of God to you, okay? This is actually what's meant to happen, that, that when you see me up here, and when you see me in missional family, and when you see me uh, in town, what you should see is the word of God proclaimed here on Sunday lived out in my life in the day-to-day, okay? And you can't get that through the podcast. You can be encouraged by the great sermon, and I do that. And I, we read the books, okay? But what you should be standing on as, as a believer in a local church is the word of God taught and interacting with the people that are actually doing that. And so that's what he says. He says, You should consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's what you should be drawn to. And so he says, follow godliness. Don't just follow people, but follow godliness. Does their life actually match what they're teaching? Number six, how are we doing? Everybody still with me? Okay, chapter 13, all right? Here we go, number six. Love, grace. Look at verse nine through 12. We won't read them all. Let me just read the first Verse here, it says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. And then he goes on to talk about the altar, and it, it can get a little bit confusing the rest of the verses. You could probably have a whole sermon just on those. But if we boil down what's happening, the bottom line is that the message that they had received, the message of grace that they had gotten, was under threat. There was other ideas. There was challenging opinions. There was something coming up internally in their minds that was challenging the basics of the gospel of grace. And now he says, what you need to be doing is, you know, is for your heart to be strengthened by grace. So when the challenges come, when the confusion comes, whether it's related to the gospel or to an aspect of God's character, he says, here's what you should do. Here's the response. Lean into the grace of God. And what that means is, usually what that means um, is where the understanding that we have, the thoughts in our head, link up with our heart. So the heart, the things that we feel about God, and the ideas that we have about God actually come together. And there's there's a great story in the Gospel of Luke just after Jesus has 
died and he's actually risen from the dead, but not everybody knows it. And on the road to Emmaus, some of you are probably familiar with this story, there's these other disciples who are walking along and they are confused. They're like, man, we thought he was the Savior we, and now he's, he's dead. They hadn't even heard that he was risen from the dead. And suddenly Jesus comes alongside them. And they don't see that it's him at first. And he starts explaining. And what it says is that he explains all the Old Testament and how everything is actually fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That Jesus was everything that he said. And, and they suddenly, when they're eating and they're in his presence, suddenly they realize that it's him. And then boom, just like that, he is gone. Okay? But what it says here in Luke 24, verse 32, and I don't think I included it in the slide, but listen to this. It says this, that they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within this while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? I don't know if you've ever had that moment before where you would, maybe you wouldn't describe it that way, but like your heart is on fire to where the reality of the gospel the truth that you've heard is now connecting to your heart. And your heart goes on fire for Christ. And that is what the author is saying. We need moments like that where our head and our heart come together and we are lit up for Jesus. And, and the best way to do that, it might be through music, it might be on a, a Sunday morning, through fellowship or through teaching, but the most impacting way is literally through the Word of God through this book that we hold in our hands, as we get up in the mornings or as we go in the evenings to read these and suddenly God lights within us a fire. There's a burning desire to see the grace of Jesus on a deeper level. And so we love grace. Number seven, bear reproach. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So we are called to bear reproach. Now, I'm not sure how often you use that phrase, bear reproach. Probably never, okay? And what it means is we are called to identify with Jesus in the shame and the insults and the difficulties that he went through on the cross. So that's our calling, actually, as a Christian, okay? Maybe you're like, I'm not sure if I signed up for that. Don't really like that one. Love to cut that little verse out of the Bible. But that is the calling of believers, is actually to bear reproach, to bear insults, to bear shame. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, Dead Poet Society. I'm going to give away some of the plot here, Okay. Basically, you've got these young teens that are in this private school that is super strict and has lots of rules. And they get this new English teacher who introduces them to uh, poetry. And he's even, you know, when he was a student, he was a part of this little secret society that was called Dead Poet Society, where they'd go out and they'd write poetry and they'd read poetry and they're all excited about this. But eventually, the whole thing kind of blows up in their face and the school finds out about it. And the school is like, no, there is no Dead Poet Society. We are killing that thing. It's done. And in this teacher that was bringing in these new ideas, he's, it's over. So they fire him. And so this bond that these students had with this teacher, is, it's over. It's done. And so on the last day when the teacher is leaving, he's cleaning out his desk, and the school has this new, like, 
90-year-old teacher who's going to teach them about poetry and the students are just dying inside. As the teacher's leaving, one of the students is just like eating him up. He hops on the table, right on top, right on top of his table, and he calls his teacher what they would call him. He, would say, he says, oh, captain, my captain. He screams it out. And the old teacher, you know, is like, get off that desk. And he's like yelling, he's braiding him, he's telling him to get down, he won't get down. Another student, just internal angst, gets up, hops on the table. Oh, captain, my captain. Teacher's yelling louder now, yelling at another student. There's like three, four of them. The rest of the students are kind of laughing at them, standing on their table saying, oh, captain, my captain. That is what it means to bear reproach, to willingly stand in that place, to take insults, to take hardship, to take the shame for the sake of Christ. Not for our own sake, not for something we've done. We take those things only for Christ. And so the author here is saying, what you are called to is to bear the shame, the rejection, all the things that God is not asking us to do without doing it himself. The things that Christ himself has gone before us and done. He says, that is your calling now as believers, is to bear reproach. Number eight, verse 15. Be thankful. Verse 13, 15 says this, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So this one's pretty basic. This one is just, be thankful for the good things that have come into your life. Even for the difficult things that have formed you into the person you are, be thankful. And how do we do that? Literally says, just say them. They are the fruit of the, the lips of your mouth that acknowledge the goodness of God. So maybe you say them to God in prayer, or maybe you say them around the table. Yesterday we had some pancakes and bacon. I don't know if it was Maple Syrup Festival yesterday. It was, I think it was, maybe it wasn't yet, but we, we pretended like it was around the table. And um, I was specifically thankful for maple syrup, right? I was just like, thank you. I even included it in my prayer, okay? I was like, thank you for maple syrup, a gift from God. And that's what the author here is saying. He's saying, be thankful. Be thankful for what God has given to you and acknowledge that. Okay, number nine. We're getting close to the end here. Number nine says, be kind. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Be kind. I think Christians, um, because of uh, historical abuses, um, because of people who say they're Christians, so you think of like residential schools or you think of colonialism done in the name of God, Christians have, have got a, a bad rap for actually being kind to their communities and to their neighbors. But if you really dig into the history, okay, if you really look into the history of what God's people have done, hospitals, orphanages, food banks, just general good in society, there's been so much that Christians have done. And this is our calling, that we may not agree with everything that our neighbors stand for, and our, may, our neighbors may look at us and they say, man, I don't agree with what you know, Darcy and Liz believe in or what they do, but they're the kindest neighbors that we have. And we know that if we were in a hard spot, we could go knock on their door because they would help us out. That's what the author is saying here. 
We should be willing to part with the things that we have for the good of those around us. So we willingly wear masks in this place. We willingly follow the local ordinances of the community here because what we see is not just our own greater good as a collective people, but we see that we're called to be kind and good people for the benefit of those around us, for the benefit of society, even the society that is against what we stand for. Because again, we do all these things because Jesus is better, because the way of Jesus is better. That's why we do these things. And so we practice being kind, we practice kindness. Number 10, verse 17, follow your leaders. Verse 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Okay, that would be of no advantage to you if they are leading in a way that is groaning. So this is, maybe this is a difficult one for us. We live in an age where authority and um, leaders is kind of like, people don't like that. And on the, the left or the right side of whatever you're looking at, there have been leaders who have um, been driven by personal gain and have um, hurt others. And so we think, man, leadership, throw the whole thing out. That is not what the Word of God says, okay? The Word of God says you need to have good, godly elders who will lead you. And the way that you know that they're good, he actually clarifies for us. There's two ways, he says. First is that they watch over your souls. They watch over the souls of the flock. That is one of the primary things that an elder is called to do, is to actually care for and know the flock so that their souls are actually cared for. So that you don't feel like you're just like a number or you're just like a person, but you are actually known in the midst and they are giving leadership to your soul. It may be, it may be seen in general ways, but it may also be felt and seen in very personal ways. Okay, so they watch over your souls. And secondly, they know that they answer to God. Right, it says that those, these leaders, they know that they will have to give an account. So they know that not only are they kind of overseeing those who are in the congregation, they know that someday they're going to stand before the judge of the universe, before Christ himself, and they're going to have to give an account for what they did as leaders. And when you have that, when you have godly elders who know that they are caring for your soul and that they know that God is their ultimate judge, you want to be under that leadership because it's going to be godly leadership. And so what's the response then? The response is this, that the result should be a local church that has godly leaders who lead, but then also members who follow in godly ways. So you've got godly leadership on one side and godly followers on the other. And when they both work together, it actually makes a really healthy local church. And so he says there, it's for, it's for their joy and it's also for your advantage, okay? So there's like joy and there is advantage in the process. So we are called to follow our leaders. Number 11, the last one, probably the most important of the bunch, okay? So he kept it right for the end. It's this, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience 
desiring to act honorably in all things. And I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. So he says, pray. Pray for your church. Pray for the people in your church. Pray that God's will would be done. This week I listened to this uh, little talk for church planters from Tim Keller, and he was actually talking about prayer. And he says this, he says, any weakness you have, like prayerlessness, will hurt you in your life. But if you're trying to be a cutting-edge ministry like church planting or something like that, it can kill you, not just hurt you. And that's what the author here is saying. He's like, man, we are in the thick of ministry, and we want to have a clear conscience, and we want to act honorably, so pray for us. Like, do that work of praying for us so that we will stay on the right track. So, of these 11 points that we just flew over, what is one, maybe, that the Holy Spirit is um, bringing to the top for you? What is the one where you're saying, man, Lord, that area of my life, would you grow that up? Would you build strength in that area because I'm weak in that area? What is the one takeaway that when we walk away from this service, we can say, man, I, I need to see that increase in my life not because God's going to be happier with me, but because it's going to lead me to understand better that Christ is all. Christ is, it's, it's complete in him. And so the result is when he is supreme in my life, these things become evident. And so I thought it fitting to end our message by reading a psalm as a prayer for us. And in a couple months, we're going to be going through psalms 1 through 15, and uh, maybe uh, if we go long enough, we'll get through all 150 psalms at some point, okay, in the life of the church. We're going we're gonna to start with 1 through 15, but maybe we'll get to the end eventually. Uh, but the reason why the psalms are so important is because they are the prayer book for the church. And so if you ever come to the point where you're like, I don't even know what to pray, you can always go to the psalms and pray them back to God. And so to complete our series here in Hebrews and to get us thinking about our, our tagline that we've had the whole time, our city to come, we want to pray uh, through Psalm 48 here, just a few of the verses to um, look to God again in hope of the promises that will be fulfilled fully someday when Christ returns. So would you pray with me? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever.